I love how the Lord works to correspond and confirm through the mouths of multiple witnesses and through the testimony of multiple scriptures. I was looking at Psalm 78 as my wife was reading out of it. I was looking at it in the message translation and thinking about how uh, closely this aligns with the word of the Lord in our sermon material for today. Uh, there's a passage here that is translated in this fashion. It follows the portion in which it says, He led his people out like sheep, took his flock safely through the wilderness. Now listen to this. He took good care of them. They had nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Strong and courageous because we have nothing to fear because the Lord takes good care and because the sea took care of their enemies for good. That's the way Eugene Peterson translates that. The sea took care of their enemies for good. Of course, here it's talking about the Exodus, and it's talking about the armies of Egypt being swallowed up and engulfed by the waters of the Red Sea closing over them, the waters which the Lord had parted for his people Israel closing over their enemies. When it says he, the sea took care of their enemies for good, you understand the idiom. It's saying that was it. That was the end of them. Those enemies were no longer a threat. But there's a point in today's sermon where I'm going to talk about the edict of the Lord towards the tribes of Canaan, the Canaanite peoples that were to be wiped out. And it creates sometimes a moral crisis for people of conscience as they read the scriptures. What do we do about a God who says to his people, you shall wipe all these other peoples out? And uh, when we come to that, I want to come back to this verse out of Psalm 78. That's a little extra special something God has sown into today's sermon that wasn't in the first service. So we'll come back to that and talk about how God takes care of enemies for good. But before we do that, let's pray. Let's ask for the word of the Lord to be opened to us beyond just that which we can understand, but also to the point of that which we can receive and apply by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, we do ask that as we open your word today, you would open our hearts, open our minds. And not only, Lord, to receive your word, but that you would give us the wisdom to know how to apply your word in our own lives today, in the particular situations that we are in, whatever challenges, wherever you're calling us, and together co corporately as a people of PCF, we ask that as your word is preached today, you also, Lord, would teach us how to apply it so that we could walk into the promise that you have given. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we began our Joshua Generation series, and today I'm going to conclude the second half of that first part. And what we're going to do today is look a little bit deeper into Joshua chapter 1 as we began doing last week. And in doing so, I want to talk about uh, some uh, review. Uh, the Joshua that we are discussing is a real historic figure. And on uh, Father's Day, maybe it's appropriate that we would begin by remembering that Joshua is a son, a son of a father named Nun. And though we don't know much else about Nun other than that, I would imagine he must have been a pretty good father to produce a son like Joshua. Joshua also from an early age was an assistant to or an aide to Moses. And in fact, it was in that capacity that Joshua was raised up as a military leader so he, uh, Joshua that is, was raised up to become a military leader, one of Moses' generals. He did in fact have a victory and in, a little bit later in the sermon today we're going to talk about how God used that particular victory 
in a, in a way that shows up again in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua was with Moses throughout all those essential, pivotal moments of Moses' leadership into the wilderness when he received the law on Mount Sinai. Joshua was there at the foot of the mountain. He was there when Moses went into the, the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. Joshua is one of only two of the 12 spies who, when they entered into to carry out reconnaissance in Canaan, said, we see the great fruitfulness of this promised land and we see the fearfulness of the enemies, but we trust in the Lord. Ten out of the twelve spies said, no, we can't take that land because we can't face those people. There are giants in that land. But Joshua and Caleb were the ones who said, we could go in because God has promised it. And though they were outnumbered, ultimately they remained. The other ten would die. Joshua and Caleb would enter the promised land. So to be part of the Joshua generation is to be among the people who say, if God said it, we can do it. If God is with us, we will go there. Amen? Amen. Turn to the person next to you and say, if God calls, we will follow. That's the point of the spies of Canaan. Two of them said, God told us that this land is ours. Therefore, we can face the giants. Ten of them didn't have that faith. The Joshua generation was people who had that faith. And it's a faith that really becomes crystal clear to us in Jesus Christ. Joshua is himself a type of Christ. Jesus and Joshua are the same name. Joshua is the Hebraic version. Jesus, the Greek version of Yahashua or Joshua. Yahweh is salvation or salvation comes from God. But not only is Joshua a, a symbol of Jesus Christ before the incarnation of Jesus, inasmuch as he shows us a leader who leads his people into the promise, but he's also an example, a real practical and applicable example for us of a human being who is called by Christ. Even though Joshua did not know Jesus Christ in the flesh because he lived before the time in which Jesus was incarnate, as Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is the eternal God, and Jesus was with Joshua. In fact, in Joshua chapter 5, which we will look at briefly today and in more detail in weeks to come, there's an encounter that Joshua has with a man who calls himself the commander of the armies of heaven. My inclination is that this is Jesus Christ, a Christophany, one of those Old Testament appearances of Jesus before the incarnation. And there's some reasons why I think that that I'll share with you. But in any case, you can be certain of this. It was Jesus who was with Joshua. And Joshua carried the name of Jesus as you and I carry the name of Christ as Christians. And we have his spirit in us. So we can look to Joshua to see what such a life is lived like. It's a life of courage in the face of obstacles, in the face of dangers, in the face of a promise that needs to be claimed. And that is the first part of the book of Joshua. The first 12 chapters deal with the entry into the land of Canaan and the conquest of the Canaanite tribes. Now I mentioned that there is this question that arises in our minds when we read that God's message to Joshua and his people was not simply claim the land or displace the people, but utterly destroy them. In fact, the scripture says to the children of Israel, you're going to go into the promised land and you're going to live in cities that you didn't build. You're going to have homes 
where you didn't put those bricks in place. You didn't dig those gardens. You didn't plant those crops. You didn't plant those trees. You didn't create those vineyards, but you're going to reap the fruit of them. You're going to eat from them. You're going to survive off of them. You're going to be cared for. It's as though everything has been readied for you. But what about the people that did build those cities and did plant those crops? What about those people? Doesn't God care about them? In fact, what God said is, destroy those people. Not just the warriors, but every man, woman, child, young and old. And this raises a question. How can we accept that kind of behavior from God? Now, we might be afraid to ask such a question, or we might say it's blasphemous to ask it, but I think it's important to recognize God isn't afraid of that question, and it is a reasonable question. Because if we value human life, it's reasonable for us to suppose that God should value it all the more. But let me return now to Psalm 78. Because as I read that passage in this message translation, I thought it carries the double entendre that perfectly encapsulates the reality of what is happening in the tribes of Canaan. God is taking care of the enemies for good. He's taking care of the enemies of Israel for good. Let me put it in the idiomatic fashion. He is saying, I'm going to wipe them out and they're not going to be a problem for you anymore. But he's also taking care of them for good. In other words, God's purpose is good. You say, how could, how could wiping people out ever be good? But we need to remember that God is the author of life. All of those people only exist because God created them. God gave them life. And he didn't give them life for no purpose. He gave them life for his purpose. What we have to recognize about those nations or tribes of Canaan, the Canaanite peoples, is that they were people so thoroughly and completely given over to everything that opposed the way of God and everything that exalted idolatry and demonism that it was impossible for them to continue living in that environment without it actually doing more harm than good to them. So that God's verdict over them was the most gracious thing that they could receive. And that might seem like uh, an example of some kind of ethnic bias on God's part, but you would mistake him if you thought that, because remember that God wiped out all the nations of the earth. Clear back in Genesis 6 when he looked at all of humanity and saw that the hearts of men and women, day in and day out, every hour of the day, were bent on doing evil. And God said, it would be better for me to wipe the earth clean. But he found a father, a man who had led his family in faith. He found Noah. He saw Noah, and Noah was, like David, a man after God's heart. Noah was a man who desired God's will to be fulfilled in his life. And he said, I, I will fulfill my purpose through Noah. All of humanity survived because of what God did in the cleansing act of the flood and the preserving act of the ark. So likewise, here, among the tribes and the peoples of Canaan, what God is doing is bringing cleansing. He is bringing holiness into the land. And God recognizes something that may be hard for us to believe, but which is absolutely true. Death is not the end of life. 
In fact, all of us have a life appointed to us. All of us can recognize the truth of Ecclesiastes 3, that there is a time for everything, a time to live and a time to die. For the peoples of Canaan, the time had come for them to meet their maker. And only God can know that, but surely God does know it. And God, the judge of all the earth, will surely do right. God is the author of life. He is actually the only one who has the inviolate right to take it because it comes from him. And what he is doing is ushering those people into his presence. Consider that these are societies who carried out their religious activity by involving ritual cultic temple prostitutes, both male and female. Paid sexual behavior was part of the religious activity of their society. These were societies that engaged in the sacrifice of their children in cold blood or by burning them alive on stone altars. These were societies which had raised up altars to all kinds of demonic idols but had torn down the name of God and rejected his laws. Societies that had ensconced in their legal codes things that did no justice for those who were in need but gave privilege to those who already had plenty. These were societies darkened deeply by sin and they are societies that reflect precisely the kind of world that we live in today. Each of those things I've described is very much applicable today. If you think that people aren't engaged in sexual idolatry and the sacrifice of children today, you are not seeing the world through God's eyes because I assure you, both those things are rampantly evident in our society today and every other kind of injustice. And what the story of Canaan tells us is this. God says there comes a day of judgment. But for those who are trusting in the Lord and obeying him, then there is hope because while God cleanses, he rewards. He provides to those who trust in him that which he has promised. And the second half of Joshua is occupied with that discussion of how the land is apportioned between the tribes of Israel and includes Joshua's final address. Now, in your bulletin today, I've given you a review of what we looked at last week, and so I won't take time to go over these points again, but you have them written for you if you like, and it may be a, a valuable reference to save in the back of your Bible or somewhere in your purse, as we'll probably look at these again as we go through this series, recognizing that there are these three major themes of transition, occupying the promise and living by obedience that are going to be valuable touchstones for us throughout this series. And also, taking these guidelines as Joshua generation people, people who say, we're going to enter into the promise, people who say, because God has said it, we will believe it, are people who remember the history of what God has done. God's past faithfulness is a memorial that gives us encouragement. God's present call to us is a promise that calls us to boldly enter in. And we keep our eyes on the future hope that God has given us, which is bound up in his perpetual presence, that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Amen. And in fact, that's where our courage comes from. It comes from his presence with us. That's why God is able to say to Joshua in chapter 1 at the beginning of the chapter, be strong and courageous. It's why the people repeat it back to Joshua. That strength and courage come from, as we looked at last week, walking on God's holy ground, living by his holy word, and sharing in his holy charge. 
The remainder of the message is going to be looking at each of these segments of the chapter, the text that it is involved there, and also some parallels that we can find elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament. But I want to make mention of this notion before we proceed any further. What does it mean to be the Joshua generation? Is it just the idea that there's a next generation, a new season? Certainly that is it. Transition is part of it. But in order to occupy the promise, there has to be this confident faith that God will fulfill the promise. If you and I say, when God makes a promise, all right, go ahead and show me and then I'll believe it. That isn't faith. For instance, brothers and sisters of PCF, the Lord has promised us 2019 is a year of fruitfulness. Now, we are halfway into the year, and I can tell you, I've seen evidence of that fruit. I think of Joshua 5. They did eat of the fruit that year. We've eaten of God's fruitfulness already in this year. If that's true for you, just say an amen to that. Amen. It's true for me, too. But I've got to say this. There is still more of that promise to be carried out, and there's a harvest coming in the time ahead. And that's the promise of God that we are called not just to believe in, but to enter in and even to contend for, to fight for it in the spirit. You see, if you and I say, oh, you're a fruitfulness, okay, well, show me, God. Show me and I'll believe. That's like the generation that said to Jesus, well, give us a sign. Give us a sign and we'll believe in you. And, and Jesus, Jesus said, it's a faithless generation that asks for a sign. The only sign that you will get is Jonah in the belly of the fish and the Son of Man in the belly of the earth. He said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the earth. What Jesus was saying is the only sign you're going to get is a sign you'll only see if you're already looking through the eyes of faith. It's the sign of the seed that dies and brings forth fruit. But if you don't have the faith now, you'll never have the faith. If you and I say, all right, God, show me and then I'll believe, you won't believe by faith. And that's the promise. In fact, it's not just that God says, I'm going to make you courageous and strong in order to obtain the promise. God is saying, your courage and strength in me is the promise. My presence with you is the promise. In fact, it's my presence that makes the ground holy. That's what the Lord has to say. And I want to show you that right now. Look in chapter 1 with me. Moses has died, the servant of the Lord, the slave of the Lord, literally in Hebrew. And Moses' servant, a different word here that means minister or aid, is Joshua. Hears from the Lord. The Lord says, Moses is dead. Now you arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the soles of all your feet tread. I put that all in there so you would recognize that in the Hebrew, it's plural. He's not just saying to Joshua, wherever your foot treads, but all of you, all my people, wherever you tread your feet. I've given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. Will you repeat that with me? Let's read this together where it says every place. You ready? Every place on which the soles of all your feet tread, I have given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the Euphrates. So Lebanon to the north, Euphrates to the east, the land of the Hittites to the northwest, 
as far as the Great Sea, which is the Mediterranean, due west, toward the setting of the sun, all the way west, will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. You notice that God said, you're going to cross this Jordan with this people. And you're going to take the land from these Hittites. Why is it that the Hebrew, which it does, includes this very specific reference? He doesn't say you'll cross the Jordan into the land with the people, but this, this, this. Because when you say this or that, it indicates your presence. If I'm on the phone with you and I say, do you see this, do you see this phone or do you see this book? You can't see it because we're talking on the phone. But if I'm standing right in front of you and I say, this book, you're going to take this book with you. What it says is, I'm right here with you. When the Lord says, this Jordan, this people, he's saying, I'm here too. I'm with you and therefore be strong and courageous because I'm not going to leave you. I'll go before you and I am the one who made the promise. I'm also the one who will fulfill it. How did he make it? He swore. I swore to the fathers to give it to him. I vowed. It's his word. So you see, when that word doesn't depart your mouth, what you are doing is you are also repeating the promise and recognizing the presence of God. To be a Joshua generation is to be people who say, you promised it, even if I don't see it, I'm stepping into it because you've actually put the promise on my feet. Now look what happens when you're on holy ground. First of all, here's the ground that they're going to walk on. Israel. We know it as Israel today. It's Canaan to them. He's promised them basically north, south, east, and west. And in the book of Joshua, as we'll be going through this series over time, there's three military campaigns by which they are going to claim this promise. They're going to walk it out through battle and through occupation. First is the central campaign. In other words, they cross the Jordan and they go into the central region of the territories to claim those lands and to defeat those tribes or present Canaanites. Those are chapters 2 through 9 of the book. Then they have a southern campaign in Joshua chapter 10 and a northern campaign in Joshua chapter 11 so that essentially they gain the entire land. But now, wait a minute. Did you hear that promise? God's promise was from east to west, north to south. In fact, he said, as he will, we'll look in a moment, he said to, to Abram, I'll give you from the Egypt River all the way to the land of the Hittites, from the Euphrates to the Mediterranean. Well, the Euphrates is this river over here. You see the river coming up out of the Persian Gulf and it splits into two? The one on your right is the Tigris and the one on your left is the Euphrates. So basically from Mesopotamia to the Mediterranean, from the Sinai Peninsula and the Egyptian kingdom all the way up into the Hittite empire, God gave all of that to them in his promise. But they didn't claim all of it. They've never gotten all that God promised. Turn to the person next to you and say, they didn't get all that God promised. Now I'm going to say it to you again, and I want you to really hear this. They did not get everything that God had promised to them. There is more of what God has promised to you than you have yet occupied. 
There is more that God has promised to this house than you and I have yet occupied. More territory for you and I to walk out and claim. More victory for you and I to receive. We want to be people who get everything that God promised to us. I am not talking about some kind of greed or gluttony by which we suppose that we're going to get everything that we want. Because let me tell you, some of what you haven't gotten yet is the hard stuff that God's going to bring your way. The battles that you have to face. The giants that you have to stand up against. Why do people not get everything that God promised them? Because they're afraid to go in and face it. Because there are things that God wants to do that you and I don't want to do. So before we get too enthusiastic about it, we better count the cost and realize that what God wants for us is both better and harder than what we would choose for ourselves. But we are people who will obey God. And yet, we won't get all of it until we start walking in that faith and stepping into the battle. Now, we are not people who have to cut other people down. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We should recognize that the call of God upon Israel and Joshua in that fashion of those battles, that is a specific aspect of God's relationship with those people in that era. In the days of Jesus Christ, he taught that we would be people who pray for our enemies and love them. That when people come against us with, the, with, with sword, and violence, we would turn the other cheek. In other words, we have a victory within us because Christ has conquered the grave that enables us to show love to every person. But we are also empowered to tear down strongholds in the spirit realm, to come against principalities and powers in the heavenlies, to defy and to, to devastate demonic opposition through the power of God. And we will not enter into the totality of our promise until we are prepared to do that. And if that scares you, then you begin to realize why it's so necessary to recognize that it's God who does it, that the Lord is our banner and our victor. So there's more to be gained in our lives and we can only do it if we are ready to face the battles. There's promises that God gave long ago that he wants to fulfill. They may not have gotten everything that God promised, but God isn't finished yet. And he will ensure that everything he declared is carried out. In Genesis 15, the Lord said to Abram, to your descendants, that's to the Joshua generation, I've given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. It's holy land because it's promised land. When Moses, generations later, encountered the Lord as the angel of the Lord, the burning bush that was not consumed, in Exodus 3, the Lord spoke from that burning bush and said, don't come near, remove the sandals from your feet. The place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the one who've heard the cry of my people, and I will come down and deliver them. You see, I'll be present. This people, I will deliver out of this Egypt into this promise, into a good and spacious land, a fruitful land flowing with milk and honey. And he does it. Now look, as it was for Moses, so it is for Joshua, so it is for you and I today. Joshua 5. Joshua is standing by the banks of the, Jer of the Jericho, uh, excuse me, standing by Jericho on the far side of the Jordan. And he sees a man standing opposite with him with his sword drawn in his hand. Now, Joshua is so prepared for battles at this, at this point because God has prepared him that when he sees a man with a sword, and this is clearly a glorious warrior, Joshua is ready to fight, but he doesn't know, are you an enemy or a friend? He said, are you with our enemies or are you with us? And the man strangely says, neither. But I am 
the captain of the host or the army of the Lord. In other words, I'm the captain of the angel armies. I'm the commander in chief of heaven. Now I put it to you that there is no one else commander of chief in heaven but Jesus Christ himself. Notice this also, Joshua begins to worship him. No angel in the Bible ever receives worship from a human being. There are human beings that start to and angels always stop them except the angel of the Lord. This is one of the reasons why I believe that the angel of the Lord in passages like this is Jesus Christ himself. Though he has not been incarnated on earth yet, he is the eternal Christ, the eternal son, and he is present there. That's my opinion in this passage. Certainly this is a representative of the presence of God, and Joshua recognizes the only thing to do in that moment is worship God, and also what? Say, what do you have to say? What do you want to tell me? Give me guidance. That's the heart of obedience. That's the heart of Noah. That's the heart of David. That's the heart of Joshua. That's our heart if we are to be Joshua generation people. What do you want to say to us? And what the Lord says is take your shoes off from your feet because you're standing on holy ground. In the ancient Near Eastern world, to remove your shoes was to reveal your body. It was to make yourself totally vulnerable. In fact, the feet were seen as a kind of microcosm of the body. When you see Jesus in John chapter 13 preparing his disciples for the mission, and their mission is what? To go and claim the territory, carry the promise. Wherever the sole of their foot treads, they'll be carrying the gospel of peace. That's what they're wearing on their feet, the preparation of the gospel of peace, as it is described in the armor of the Lord in Ephesians 6. So Jesus washes their feet to ready them. Purity is preparation for power. Turn to the person on the other side and say, purity is preparation for power. The holiness of our lives matters to our capacity to carry out the promise of God, to enter into it and realize it. And the only way that we're going to get holy is not by trying. That's like Joshua and the troops trying to win the battle with their own strength. We're going to see in a future message, it doesn't work out well for them. What they need is God, and therefore they need to make themselves naked before the Lord. Removing your shoes is a return to the garden. It's a return to the place of perfect trust in God. But it's also recognizing only God can prepare me now. If I don't have shoes on my feet, I can't walk through the wilderness of Sinai. I can't cross over and take the land. Nobody goes into a battle barefoot. But God says, I will shod your feet with good news because I'm with you. So make yourself vulnerable to God and trust God and you'll be purified in God. And that purification will be preparation for the power of God to be released through you. The place of promise is holy because the one who promised is present there. He's the holy one. He makes it holy. No wonder what he's saying is, Everywhere you go will be holy ground because I'm going with you. Hallelujah. That assurance gives us strength. Wherever we go in faithful obedience to God's call, we have holy power to achieve and proclaim his victory. But we need to do it by faith. Don't wait for the victory to be won by somebody else. You've got to wade into the spiritual battle yourself, trusting that God is with you. And you can do that because his word is with you. His word will not depart from you. That's what living by the word means. It means walking according to the word, the word that is a light to our feet. It guides our path. Be strong and courageous, the Lord says, and this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it. Consider it, mutter it, speak it. 
all day and night. And be careful to do according to all that is written in it, right? Don't just know it, sow it and grow it. Don't just see it, believe it and act on it. Actually do what it says. Count on the word of the Lord to provide the truth and the guidance that he says that it will. Count on the Lord to be who he says and then you'll be prosperous and you will have victory and success. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now notice there's another this in this passage, right? God is saying this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Not only does that mean that God is present with Joshua, it also means that God's book is present with Joshua. This book means that book is already there. Joshua has it with him. It's an evidence that Joshua carries the word of the Lord with him already. Hallelujah that you and I have greater access to this compendium, this library of 66 books of God's word than probably any other generation in human history. How sad to consider that at least here in this nation, we may be less interested in it than generations that preceded us. With all the abundance of the riches of God's word available to us, we should be the most biblically literate generation ever. And we're not. But we should be. This book of the law will guide us. This word of the Lord will give us life if we keep speaking it, if we keep reading it, and if we ask God to show us how to apply it. But you and I should recognize this. When Joshua was hearing these words from God, he didn't even have those 66 books. So what is this book that God is referring to? It is probably the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. But in that Torah, I want to draw your attention to a particular passage. You still with me? You're hanging in there? Okay, we're getting there. Exodus 17, the, Joshua has that victory as a general of the armies under Moses. He has a victory to overwhelm the Amalekites. You remember we talked about that just a few minutes ago. The Lord says to Moses, write it down in a book. Write down that I gave victory to Israel through Joshua's leadership over those troops. And then Moses recite it to Joshua so that that book won't leave your mouth. You'll keep speaking it to him. In other words, not only did Moses write it down, that victory, he read it back to Joshua repeatedly. It was apparently a touchstone of their relationship so that Moses would say, remember, remember, son, the Lord's with you too. Remember what he did. And Joshua kept that with him so that there is not only the word of God that provides for us the history of how God has behaved and the accuracy of who God is. There's also the personal memorials that you and I make, the remembrances of how God has used us and moved for us in the past. It's essential that you keep on speaking about that. You talk about that, share that, create places where you're reminded of that. You put a picture on the wall, you put a verse into your Bible, you highlight or underline or write something down, you put it in your car, you put it in your pocket, you carry with you the remembrance of what God has done and it is strength and encouragement to you for the next steps ahead. Moses went so far as to build an altar and that altar was given a name and the name was the Lord is my banner. So that the word becomes a reminder, God is my victor. Amen. Victory is in the Lord. God is my protector. And his banner over me is praise. He said the Lord has sworn that he will carry this uh, victory forward from generation to generation. 
Now, when Moses came to the place of his final words to Israel in Deuteronomy 31, he also says many of the same things that the Lord says to Joshua, including that they are to be strong and courageous and not be afraid. So that there is uh, this through line of promise from Moses to Joshua that says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Even if Moses dies, even if leaders leave, even if there are changes we didn't anticipate and we aren't prepared for, even when we face loss and there are those who helped us before that aren't there to help us again, the Lord says, I am with you. I'm your banner and I will never forsake you. So if the Lord is my helper, says Hebrews 13, I will not be afraid. You'll never leave me. You'll never forsake me. I'm courageous in you. What can mere mortals do to me? Jesus said, you are going to take this word to all the people. Everywhere that your foot goes, it's going to go with the gospel. The gospel that you're going to teach people and lead people into walking in themselves. And I am with you always. You see that Matthew 28 and the Great Commission is essentially the same mission that Joshua had with the same great promise. Because it's the same God. He has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And considering promises on Father's Day, how about the promise of the Father that we commemorated last week on Pentecost? The Holy Spirit. Luke uses that signal phrase, the promise of the Father, in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts to refer to the gift of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the helper who comes alongside to do what? To put these words in your mind and in your mouth. To remind you of everything that was said. To remind you that you don't need to be afraid that God is with you. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let it be dismayed. But let your mind and heart meditate on the word of the Lord. And be encouraged by the equipping of the Holy Spirit. In doing so, you are standing on holy ground and entering into promise. You are walking and living according to the word of God. And finally, church, in this closing passage, I want to say it's important for us to do that together, unified. Amen. We need each other. Amen. God has placed us together. Amen. Every person here is here today under the grace of God and by the call of God, whether you're aware of it or not. Even people perhaps listening, I want to say God is involved in you hearing this message, wherever, whenever you are hearing it. And there is a purpose of God in your life that can only be fulfilled as you are rooted in the community of the body of Christ. This is something that in our nation today here in the United States and many places around the world, we are losing touch with this reality. We cannot be the people of Christ on our own. We need to be unified together. When the promise was given, there were two and a half tribes who said, you know, we're actually happy on this side of the Jordan. The tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, one of Joseph's two sons. His tribe was split between the two sons. Those two and a half tribes said, you know, we see what's on the other side and it looks a little daunting to us. We're fine with this side of the Jordan. We can plant crops here. We can live here. Sometimes it's just easier to stay where we are. And Moses said to them, no, that's not an option. He afforded them a compromise which the Lord allowed, and it was this. If you'll go in before us, that is, if you will send your men at the vanguard of the troops, they're going to go into the heat of the battle first, every battle. 
the men of Reuben and Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh, then as long as every other tribe receives its portion, then you can come back to the women and children of your tribes on the other side of the Jordan. Now, what we can say that honors the reality of these people is they fulfilled that promise. Joshua said to them, get ready. Within three days, you're going to go in. And they said to Joshua, we will do everything that you commanded us. We'll go wherever you send us. We are with you. We're not going to abandon our brothers. We are going to take this territory together. And in fact, they do that over seven long years. They don't go back. They keep going forward until that land of Israel is claimed. But I wonder, that greater promise, the broader land, I wonder if the two and a half tribes had said, you know what, it's not enough for us to stay on this side of the Jordan. Let's go all the way in to everything that God has said. I wonder if that might not have released an even greater encampment of Israel into the territory that was promised it. I don't know, and I can't say, but I am persuaded by the book of Joshua and by the Bible as a whole that where there is greater trust in God, there is greater fruitfulness. And wherever our trust grows weak, our fruit withers. So let this be a lesson to us. First of all, that they hold to their promise. But secondly, that if you and I desire every good thing of God to be brought forth, we should be bold to believe for every promise, no matter how difficult or challenging. In fact, we can be excited that when the challenge is great, the promise is sure to be even greater. And like the two and a half tribes, we can say to each other and to our leaders, be strong and courageous because the Lord your God is with you. He is with you together. You are part of PCF in this season for a reason. There is a promise to be walked out and we can only walk it together. But each of us individually have divine promises ready to be released also in this season. Believe God and listen to God for the things that he calls you to face. And if they are challenging and fearful, don't be afraid, but allow his presence to be your courage and his word to be your guide. And not only that, but your sword, sharper than any other two-edged sword, because it penetrates into the very place of purest promise. Hallelujah. Lord, we thank you for your word that never leaves us and your presence that never leaves us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that you have purified us in the blood of Jesus Christ. And if there's anyone within the sound of my voice, Lord, who has not received that purification from you or who has turned away from it in some extended or dramatic way, we pray, Lord, that right now they would recognize your broad invitation that says, enter into me. I will be the ark of salvation to you to preserve you from judgment. I will be the ark of covenant to you to provide you the promise. I will be your savior, your banner, your sure reward. I invite you in now. Let me make you the warrior and the victor that I've always intended you to be. Let me free you from your sin and open your eyes to a great kingdom promise ahead. Lord, we say yes and amen to everything that you desire to do in and through us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.